You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your general host, Abraham. (laughs) And I'm going to be your very response repertoire host, Shane. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, well, that works, I guess. It's fine enough. That works. We are a psychology podcast. We like to tackle all things psychology related. And this is another installment in a series that we are doing on applied behavior analysis, particularly as it relates to a discussion that has some has some attention Mm -hmm. online right now. That's a way to put it. In which yeah, in which people have been critical of applied behavior analysis, sometimes in a way that feels more charitable, in a way that's constructive, sometimes in a way that is not constructive. And people from from various walks of life, from various professions, weighing in on this this controversy, if you will, that applied behavior analysis might not be appropriate for neurodiverse individuals, particularly children with autism diagnosis. At least that's the the claim being made here. And so we have been talking about this, the first discussion in the series, we sort of talked about essentially what is the nature of this argument. And then we talked about the history of punishment in applied behavior analysis. And then most recently, the outcome that can happen where children, it doesn't have to be children, but whoever goes through the process of ABA, they maybe appear to have rigid robotic type behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a brief summary. I think if you're interested in any of those topics and you haven't listened to them, you might go back and check those out. However, I do think that today's episode will more or less stand on its own, acknowledging that the context for the reason for this discussion is primarily in the first episode. And just kind of reiterate the goal of these episodes is like while we have that context in the beginning, every episode is going to be a different argument. Every episode is going to be a discussion around a particular topic. So you have the time to digest the information that we're sharing, to unpack the the discussion that we're talking about, and to be able to have the space to be able to kind of think more deeply about unique individual arguments versus the entire argument as a whole. We don't want to hit you with so much information that it's impossible to understand kind of where we're coming from or where the discussion's going. We want to make sure that we have enough time and give these particular topics enough room to breathe. Precisely. So with that, today we are talking about well, let's let's put in some some context here. It'll become clear what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, getting into this, the essential argument for today that we are going to take on is that what an individual learns when they are going through or have gone through ABA therapy does not change their actions and skills outside of those therapeutic sessions and settings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's describe this a little bit more. Yeah. So essentially what this is saying is that kids will spend so many dozens or hundreds or thousands of hours, depending on how long they get services in therapy, learning certain skills only to walk out of the therapy room and go right back into their patterned way of acting. So like they'll learn a skill, they'll learn it in that context. And then once they leave that context, they will never engage in what was taught. Yep. Just right out. Just right out. In one ear and out the other. That's kind of the argument that's being made here and in that there's time, there's money, there's resources and stress all related to learning that skill And the stress of learning is effective only in that smallest number of settings. It does not apply outside of that. It does not go outside of that, move outside of that. It doesn't help them in real life situations or real life contexts. 
And so an example of this might be that the the individual might not actually practice any self-care, such as brushing their teeth or taking a shower, if they're not explicitly told to do so by the behavior analyst or whoever is sort of their person who's instructing these things, or they might learn things for which they have no real motivation. So they learn a skill, but there's not really they don't really want to know that skill or to use it. And they don't apply any of their skills unless they're explicitly instructed to do so. And so we have essentially this rigid, narrow range of things that they've learned that once the therapy session is over, it's it seems like they never made any progress at all. And they just sort of go into, you know, we we fail to see that those things that they've learned then translate to actions outside of that session where ideally they'd be able to use those skills to be successful. To break this down even further, essentially what happens is in therapy, you learn something. The minute that you're outside of therapy, you do not do that thing, right? It's like if you've ever gone to therapy yourself and talked to a counselor and they said, practice your deep breathing in these situations, and then you never do deep breathing outside of that room in that context. That's the argument that's being made here. It's like a treatment failure, basically, you know? That things don't work when they're supposed to. Right. Exactly. Okay. So that is the characterization of the the criticism being leveled here. So let's let's talk about how we might respond to that. And the first thing that I would say is, Amen. Yeah. One hundred percent. That that is an absolute fair critique. One hundred percent. Yes. So we're talking about generalization. They're general, you know, the ability to generalize these skills outside of this environment. And teaching generalization has proved to be one of the most challenging aspects of this work. Yeah. You know, we we feel like things are looking really, really good. And then as soon as it's put to the test, it just falls apart. And it's so frustrating to spend time working on repeated practice with these discrete component skills only for that individual to do none of it when we actually try and move it into the real world in a less contrived situation. That is not on the kid. That is not on the individual. That is on us. Yeah. And so it's not that we're frustrated with them. We're frustrated with the fact that this hurdle has been so challenging to overcome. Now, this isn't the case for everybody. A lot of time, maybe most of the time, we teach these skills and they very successfully translate to the real world application that we're working toward. And there are these instances that are not infrequent. So they, you know, they happen often enough to be a cause of concern where we fail to see that generalization take place. And and that's just a thing where sometimes we don't know that that's, it's not going to work. Right. You know, we're trying it. It seems like things are going great. They're showing really good comprehension and mastery of a skill. And then we try it out and it just nothing and nothing, you know? Yeah. That sucks for the you know, for the person who was on the receiving end of those services. That sucks for the person delivering it. That sucks for the family. It's it's, it's a huge breakdown. That's just it. It's not a place that we ever want to find ourselves. And a hundred percent fair that that would be a criticism because it happens. To kind of discuss that a little bit, and one thing that I, that, I, that I think is worth kind of discriminating within this conversation is that it's not that the science of ABA lacks the ability to do this, right? The science, the behavioral science exists when we talk about generalization and maintenance and different skills and strategies and all the things that go into actually practicing generalization. That does exist within our literature. That does exist as part of a practice. The problem comes down to how well it's practiced and how well it's taught in those spaces. 
when we can capture those different moments, when we can capture those different examples, when we can capture and really look at how many exemplars we can teach that will help kind of spread that skill out. Human beings have a natural propensity to to kind of like problem solve in a situation, right? You're going to like, when yes. you have a skill in your repertoire, you're going to end up kind of testing and seeing what works. That's, whole, that's the whole thing with like selection by consequences, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going to try to test the waters and see what works. However, sometimes you need multiple examples and sometimes you need multiple ways to be able to engage in a skill or different practices to be able to do that. Now, in our therapeutic context, we do our best or we try to do our best to prepare the folks that we're serving to be successful outside of that therapeutic context. When we start building teaching opportunities and all that, we really try to look at different ways to to expand that skill. Yeah. So, for example, if I'm teaching somebody to open a door, I'm going to try to teach different examples of doorknobs. Like there is a doorknob that you twist. There's levers, there's push bars, there's there's revolving doors. There's different ways that you could open and close a door. Sure. So if I'm teaching somebody to do that, I want to give them multiple ways to do that. Or same thing with washing hands, right? Like if you're going to go use a sink, I mean, how many times have you ever gone and stayed in the hotel and tried to figure out how to turn on the hot water, right? Like, right. Yeah. You're looking at the two knobs and you're like, oh, man, like, oh, no, one of these I is going to make this one. really unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I only learned with one. But that's what we're talking about within this. Like we have sometimes the the examples to do that, but maybe we don't get to those examples well enough in that context. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Sometimes we haven't hit the mark. Sometimes we haven't taught the skill well enough or maybe we've taught the skill originally to be too rigid. But again, this isn't part of the field in and of itself. But it is a difficulty that is affected by the skills of the therapist, the actual practitioner, the learner that we're working with, and the rest of that person's world. So it is a combination of variables that make this a little bit more difficult in that space. But it tends to get magnified a little bit more if the therapist doesn't know how to do this well. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, actually. I was gonna I was gonna hit that point again, and you did you did it really nicely, that there's there are multiple variables that will be affecting this. You know, sometimes it's in the therapist's skill. Sometimes it's in that the individual's environment. There are multiple reasons that it might be the case that that this breaks down, and, and also to the point that although we we do have a pretty good science of this, like we have a lot of literature showing how can we make generalization more likely. Yeah. How can we encourage this? How can we set this up to work the way that it needs to work so that these skills do translate to real life situations. IRL. I always use the example of just like a where where you know missed opportunities with generalization can cause some significant problems. Like yeah. my mentor had worked with a learner who only drank out of a certain type of water bottle, mm-hmm. and so what ends up happening is they only drink out of this water bottle. What if this water bottle is not available? Now this person is lacking the skills to drink out of any other vessel, which is becomes a unique issue. Right? They go out to dinner, they order a drink. And it comes in a plastic cup versus this glass water bottle. And now you have a major episode within a community context because we missed an opportunity to train a skill that might have been necessary for that learner to to be successful in that space. So, you know, I mean, that's just one example of how missed opportunities for generalization can have these really drastic impacts. And I think there's probably the experience that a listener might have hearing this and thinking, well, if they don't want to learn it, if they're not motivated to learn it. And we got some listener mail to this effect that I think is it's it's a discussion and it's probably worth sharing part of it at least is this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. But you can't teach someone to be intrinsically motivated except by starting with some kind of external reward, right? Right. 
but they don't necessarily always internalize that process, particularly if that skill or that reward isn't really that valuable to them. Like you might get some motivation for external reward. And for some people that does become internalized, like they then are motivated to do the thing just to just because doing it is successful. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think maybe, you know, teaching someone to get something for themselves where initially you, you teach them the small little steps to, you know, put the money in the machine and press the button to get the food that you want as, as like a vending machine, for example, is how you might go about teaching someone. And then once they've learned how to do that, then the motivation is there. Like now they can get the thing that they want and they probably don't need a lot of teaching, but there are other skills like washing your hands. That's like, this just feels like a chore, you know? Right. So it may not become internalized, at least not for a while. So if we're to go the route of the, let's just wait until they're intrinsically motivated, then we will wait a lifetime. Yeah. And in the meantime, while we're waiting a lifetime for them to be intrinsically motivated, they're getting cavities from not brushing their teeth. They're getting arrested for running around naked. They're smelling like a hot corpse rotting in the Florida sun because they refuse to bathe. Mm -hmm. There's a multitude of other issues that, that come with an orientation to, we'll wait for them to be intrinsically motivated. And if your thing is, well, we're not going to wait for them to be intrinsically motivated, we're going to try and talk them into it. Well, then again, you're starting from an external factor. Right. And that's okay. I think that's where you have to start, you know, yeah. a lot of the time with these things. That actually reminds me, you had told the story in a previous episode about the person with the CPAP device because yeah. of sleep apnea. Yeah. And that initially it was very aversive. And so you just had to work on making it a positive thing, making it feel kind of fun and accessible and rewarding any kind of approach to it. And that started with external, but then it was easier to sleep mm -hmm. and it was no longer aversive. And then the ind individual could choose to do that thing voluntarily. Right. And that's great. And so there's just, there's an issue in here, I think, of just how we go about trying to motivate these things to be generalized. And I guess how that relates to this extrinsic intrinsic discussion is just really like, we've got to start somewhere. And sometimes it, again, we, we just have those external rewards and that's all we have for maybe a long time. Yeah. I guess that's kind of a different issue a little bit, but speaking to the fact of the lack of generalization can come from that. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of it, too, is also one thing that we have had discussions about is like as we begin to critique the field and the concerns, I'm really glad that we're touching on this particular topic because this is one that you can see a whole lot of problems within like different goal setting when you work with families. Like I was just talking to somebody the other day that was working with a learner who was being taught to tolerate shaving cream on their hands. Okay. This is an early learner who is not going to have to shave. For many many years and the rationale for it was this this child did not like their to get their hands dirty mm -hmm. so okay sure but now this person is having like pretty emotional responses to this particular stimulus so now i'm teaching this kid to get stuff on his hands like shaving cream and not really have like a a meaningful outcome like i'm teaching him to tolerate shaving cream but i'm not teaching him to tolerate dirt on his hands or when they get sticky in a real life situation yeah and it's again it's not to teach him to tolerate it's to teach him to advocate to get that stuff off of his hands if he doesn't like it nobody should have to sit through having junk on their hands if they don't want it on their hands definitely and so it was just this really interesting and I say interesting because I don't understand how it got to that point. Right. But just a missed opportunity for teaching a real life functional skill using real life actual events 
and not something that is not likely to generalize because when they brought up that skill, I was like, well, when am I ever going to have shaving cream on my hands? Yeah. Yeah. You never shave. I personally never <laughs> shave, but like, even when I do shave, I use an electric razor. So like, I don't even, like, you know, when I did shave, like I would shave, I would shave using electric razor because I didn't like the feeling of shaving cream. So like that question of when am I in my adult life going to have shaving cream on my hands? Also goes to the question of like that long term, that long view of generalization and why that gets missed sometimes. Sometimes we teach a skill in that moment and we miss what that long view looks like, which is why am I teaching this? Is this is this working towards independence or is this working towards a problem that we're identifying now that's not actually a problem later? I love that distinction a lot. And I, I really like that that story to illustrate that point. It, I mean, I, I think I completely agree that that seems like a situation where there was definitely a missed opportunity for. I think better decision making on the part of the program, the guide, I guess the the direction for that individual, and yeah, like that that's an issue, and and it speaks to I think a greater issue that we'll touch on in a moment. Mm-hmm. But I just want to share this other story of I try and think back when we, we tell these stories of like when in my life have I made these mistakes, and I'm sure I'm sure that I have, you know, right? Getting involved in this field sometimes it's easy to get focused on what we can do. And we where as you actually mentioned, we're often in this problem solving mode, right? We're right. sort of like we see something, now we feel like we need to address it. And it's we sometimes don't stop to think, particularly when when we're maybe new at this, we don't stop to think like, is this a relevant thing to be working on? Right. And always thinking about how is this going to improve the life of this individual? Like, can I reasonably justify this? Right. And a com- you know, a lot of conversations I had early on in my career too was the only reason to change behavior is because doing so would result in a higher quality of life for that individual. And we can reasonably make that case. Like we could have outcomes we're working toward. Our goal is always to put ourselves out of a job by being successful enough that they don't need us anymore. Right. And by doing so, have we actually improved their quality of life? And that's that's a really tricky question because like they oftentimes don't or can't have a say in that process and it'd be it probably be preferable if they could. Anyway, nevertheless, the example I was going to tell was was a success story I, I had where I'd worked with an individual who, <laughs> this is a very small thing, but he liked to put mustard on his hamburgers, uh-huh. but his, his control of the mustard bottle was not great. <laughs> and so when he would go to put it on, he just squeezed as hard as he could. Uh-huh. And this was just, this became a mustard burger Yeah, yeah. with a little bit of bun and meat in there, but mostly it was just mustard. And then he wouldn't eat it. And then he was mad because his food was gross. Yeah. And so what I did is I I got this little sheet of paper and I drew in circles on it about a dollop of mustard. I had him just practice squirting to fill the circle and then I would just I would reward every time he was able to to fill the circle. Yeah. And stay inside the circle and basically just practice that and I made this the the circle I'd faded the circle out until there was nothing on and he would just do dollops on the paper without the circle present. And what was kind of fun this one time is then that after he'd gone through those steps in the process and then they're having burgers and uh he he did the the size and then he looked at me and he's like, look, I did the size. <laughs> he was all excited about it. It was really cute. Yeah. And so like that, that one was, I, f- I felt relevant because again, it was like he wanted to eat the food, but he was like just so bad at controlling the squirt. Well, right. And I think that I think it's an important discussion within this is like a lot of times what will happen is like, we'll get asked to work on a skill that's important for that learner. But like sometimes, yeah, maybe we're working on something that is not important for that learner, but important for the people around them. And so like, like the shaving cream example I brought up was important for the family to be like, he needs to tolerate this, but not necessarily important for the learner himself. The learner was like, I don't want to touch shaving cream. This sucks. Yeah. You know, so like, and I think that's an important discussion, which we're, I think we're getting ready to 
touch on a little bit the idea of like when we talk about that quality of life and stuff is really looking at like what is important for that learner as far as like that quality of life. If I have a learner, for example, who wants to date, that's great. I want you to date like you should have meaningful relationships and right. And we should be safe about that and working within that to make sure that you're not harming somebody else within that space. So like looking at those skills and generalizing those skills and and really practicing different exemplars is super important because that person is consenting to what skills are necessary, what they want to work on towards their quality of life. And I think, you know, early in my career, a lot of times, and, and I'm sure you can attest, and a lot of behavior analysts that have been around for a while have probably had the conversation of, oh, this is this is what I'm seeing is a problem and going, this is what we need to tackle. And instead of being like, this is what I'm seeing as a problem, are you also seeing this as a problem? And how do we kind of like synthesize that so we can work on goals together collaboratively? And I feel like that's something that's taken me practice long term. And that's actually like improved and worked on my generalization skills. That's worked on, Mm -hmm. that's helped improve me as a practitioner in that space. Just being like, this is what I'm seeing. Are you seeing the same thing? How do we reconcile that to make that so that everybody involved, the family, the, the clinician, the learner, are all on the same page working towards the same actual goal. I agree with all that and super well said. I was having the thought that I hope we haven't gone too off of the the topic <laughs> for our listeners here. <laughs> right, right. Of the issue being, yes, sometimes we are not very good at teaching generalization or motivation for some of these skills. Right. And the alternative to that is to teach nothing at all. And I think that just that's just not an acceptable alternative. If you if you care about that person, you can't just say, "Well, if we can't get generalization, then we can't do anything." And I, and I I want to be clear that I don't think that that's the argument that is being made from the people who have this criticism, right? Right. I think the argument that's being made is your generalization is not good enough, right? And I think that that's that you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think we we have made a lot of strides to make it better. Mm-hmm. And where it breaks down is at the training of the clinician, the therapist who's implementing this, and where it breaks down is a lack of support in the environment for that individual. Yeah, and some other, you know, I think places as well. But this is definitely something we acknowledge as a field that we are really trying to be better at. Yeah, and the fact that it it is not consistent speaks to the fact that we have more work to do. We have more work to do in our teaching our clinicians. We have more work to do in our science for teaching clinicians and in our science of generalization. I think even though we have good supports, we have good strategies and interventions in place to facilitate generalization happening. That doesn't mean that the science on generalization is done. You know, there's really good work out there to be done yeah. to ensure that we we continue to step up our game on this and make it increasingly likely that individuals can be successful outside of the context in which we're providing the therapy. So I guess all that is to say that we're working on this and I understand the the criticism. And I think that that, that the solution isn't therefore you can't use the strategy because it isn't it isn't working well enough. And again, I don't think that's the argument that's happening, but the the solution has to be like we are committed to reforming to do better. Right. Absolutely. I think to your last point, like the point about the idea, like, you know, we, while we can recognize that we're not very good at generalization and some of the alternatives is teaching nothing, like we're not settling on either of those things. Like that's not like the, it's not going like, well, I guess this is where we're at now. It's very much so like we recognize that our training might not be good in this space, like or at least our practices might not be good in this space. We also recognize that teaching nothing is bad. So let's improve 
what we're teaching and let's continue to make that so much better than it is by being better practitioners, by doing more research, by thinking more critically, and by listening to the folks that we're serving so that we can make sure that whatever that generalization goal is, is meaningful for that person. There's an underlying theme that I think is going to become more apparent as we get through these discussions, but there's an underlying theme here of the fact that behavior analysis seems to probably have some kind of systemic training issue Yep, where we are a very rapidly growing field. And we have a lot of people who are being trained and the training has to be just top notch. Like the stakes are too high for us to get by on like kind of good training. Yeah. Like on a minimum standard. Yes. The minimum standards have to be extremely high. And this is part of why in, in our field, for those who are in our field, you know this already, but for those who are maybe outside of it, the number of publications in journal articles and books on how to supervise effectively has been through the roof in the last few years. Yeah. You know, and we, we recognize like there is a systemic problem of making sure that we produce people for whom they can address these kind of issues appropriately. And it's not to say that there's something where the system is set up to ensure that they fail, but the keeping up with the growth has been very challenging. Yeah. Right. It's just a matter of continuing to refine our process to make sure that our approach to supervision is an extremely comprehensive one. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't have said that better myself. I mean, that's exactly it. Our training programs are not doing enough. I mean, there are great training programs out there, but they are they are not as abundant as they should be. And that is absolutely a fair critique of the field, too. Okay. And then I think there's another point on here. I want to make this, it's unrelated to generalization specifically, but it is very related to this entire discussion. And we're just going to be very quick. This is, this is a a long discussion that we're, we're going to have with some other people in the future, but there's a bias that we have coming to this that we're trying to not convey, but I think that we probably do convey on accident. And this is the idea of ableism. Mm-hmm. Shane, you want to define ableism for us? A definition that I was able to pull from accessliving.org um, says ableism is the discrimination of and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. End quote. You know, this goes on to kind of talk about essentially kind of a core message around the idea of ableism is that quote unquote normal behaviors are better than quote unquote atypical behaviors. The idea that it is very much so a, an us type of mentality versus a them type of mentality within this. And what you'll find is that there is a, a certain level of privilege that goes along with folks who do not identify or do not have certain disabilities. Right. That comes with privilege. It's very similar to white privilege, very similar to religious right. privilege in the United States, where as far as I know, Abraham and I are able-bodied and we come from a space where we have able-bodied privilege. And so when we talk about this type of thing, we come from that bias of an understanding that we have also worked in a field that is systemically ableist, like in that it is uh, approaching, like working towards normalization or social norms and peer normative behavior and stuff like that, where those types of things could be identified as ableist. And so we are going to talk about that more with some folks. We are going to unpack that. Like we want to make sure that we spend a lot of time really giving that the credit it deserves. But we do recognize as we kind of enter this space that while we are 
we have able privilege, able body privilege. We also recognize that we are actively trying to attend to that bias and to undo that bias in the languaging and the, t- and the conversations that we're having. And we're not going to be perfect at it, but we are actively trying to do that. Yes. this And this is one of those things where, just as you said, I think your example of white privilege is a really good one because ableism can span the the gamut, if you will, of what it can look like is outward, hostile discrimination. Like we shouldn't have to follow ADA compliance. We shouldn't have to make uh, special accommodations for people who have, who are, who are differently abled. We shouldn't have to cater to people who have vision impairments or neurological impairments. They should be you know, put in their own separate place. That's like an aggressively hostile version of ableism. Right. That's a very overt. That's a very overt. Like you can you can pinpoint yeah. that and observe that and measure it in a really in a really clear way. But there's very subtle versions of ableism that I think a lot of people engage in where they don't think about it. And, ter- and I think, you know, we probably did this on accident when we were talking about punishment and we we're talking about what is aversive. And we would just use the blanket term aversives to refer to something where it's intended to be a behavior stopping event. But aversive is idiosyncratic and it is unique to the individual. And so what is considered aversive, it is not from the perspective of the of the implementer, of the therapist. It is from the perspective of the person on the receiving end. And so it is ableist to assume that you can just and that this came from um, some listener mail feedback that we got. But it is ableist to speak from the perspective of someone as if you are disregarding the experience of the of the person on the receiving end of this by just sort of saying, no, this is what it is. And so you don't get a say in what your experience is. It doesn't matter because we're giving you a definition that you have to use. Right. And I think other things that we might say where we speak about something where we're speaking on behalf of other people, what they can, what they want, even saying we're trying to improve their quality of life has an ableist message in it. Where we're sort of saying, like, your quality of life isn't good enough. Right. And I'm saying that as a privileged, able-bodied person. Right. So I'm going to improve it because I can. Yeah. saying like, It's like essentially saying your quality of life has not met my standards of what a quality of life should look like. And that that yeah. in itself is inherently ableist, even though that's not the intent. That is absolutely something that is in ableist and something that we can all do better to improve. Right. And so that's there will be a much more in-depth discussion of this. But that's, I think, we really are trying to catch our own bias here and we're using this language and we're you know we're trying to acknowledge that we have used this already in this discussion we're going to look for more opportunities and I'm, I'm sure we even used it today and so i think being well armed with an ability to recognize that it's happening is going to allow us to try and reduce that kind of attitude and i think the other side of that too is also being open to the idea that you're gonna mess up and we're gonna mess up and that we that feedback is an opportunity for us to learn. I saw this really great quote that was like, it was, it was pretty much thanking everybody for giving us the opportunity, giving human beings the opportunity to mess up and the support to do better. And that's really what we're trying to do in these conversations. And within that conversation, we have the opportunity to mess up and do better and to continue to work forward. Cause it is, it is kind of a moving goalpost lifelong journey to be anti-ableist, to be anti-racist, to be anti-sexist. Like that is a lot of work. It's undoing, I mean, for both of us, it's undoing 35 years of history growing up in a society that is white-centric, straight-centric, able-bodied centric. I mean, it is, is a very, it's a lot to undo, and it's a lot of unpacking implicit biases, ableism being one of the parts of that. Did you just age me to our whole audience? Did I? I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant our collective why we do what we do crew. Oh, God, no, I'm getting myself in trouble. 
<laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. I think this is one of those areas where if we can if we can model and 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 I'd like to say like I apologize for the ableist language we, we've used and I will continue to apologize when we recognize that we've used it and we as you said we're going to not intentionally but we we're probably going to make these mistakes until we have modified our attitude and language and we found our blind spots because right now this is there's just a lot of blind spots. Yep, I think there's blind spots as you said with with racism and sexism, and we're never going to improve if we pretend they're not there. And I would like to be a people who model the kind of self-reflection where we continue to catch these things because we're just we're not we're not part of the group that has to live this every day. And that in and of itself is a kind of privilege, you know. Right. And that's this the same problem where it's like I would like to talk about issues like sexism, but like the sexism that I experience is that I come from a privileged position, you know? Yeah. And so like we've, I've said and done sexist things out of sheer ignorance. Right. And just trying to catch those blind spots. So that ended up being a lot longer of a sort of side (laughs) track than I wanted to get into, because as I said, we're going to unpack this in a, in a deeper way. Yeah. But I think it was a very useful piece of feedback to help us continue to guide this conversation moving forward that that particular term is sort of at the root of what we're talking about with reform, with thinking about what these criticisms are, why they exist, who's making them, what we are doing in response to that. And I think for my part, it feels like we're trying to just make sure we're trying to get on the same page because at the end of the day, what we do, we are motivated by being in service of other people Mm -hmm. and what that looks like is going to be colored by our biases and we're and we're we're trying to move that needle if you will toward being in service of other people without the baggage you know right there's a way to be in service of other people without carrying that stuff with us so anyway i i guess that's that's what i have to say on that do you have anything else to to add to that no i think that's fair and i think as we explore this more keeping it in mind that yes th- this is going to be a running theme as well is is understanding ableism within these contexts And to be able to give it a space, I mean, we had talked about kind of touching on it in this episode and we didn't make, we did want to make sure that we use it as a talking point, but we also want to make sure that this is kind of an, an ongoing undercurrent of all this yeah, and that we are going to have a more in-depth discussion around this with folks who can probably articulate it a little bit better than we have already. Yeah, I think so. And have a, a meaningful discussion around it. But you know, the core for us at the podcast here is understanding that yes, we are recognizing that this is a bias that we all have. And this is also recognizing that we are doing independent learning on our own. We are actively open to feedback to address these things and that we are trying to move into a direction to dismantle a lot of the ableist systems that do exist in a meaningful way. And and so we're not quite there where a lot of folks are, you know, maybe we haven't hit those marks or maybe we haven't gotten to that point where we are less ableist or more, you know, we haven't really hit those spaces yet, but we are actively moving in that direction. The value, if you will, I think is anti-ableism and that's the direction we're trying to go. Yep. 100%. Yeah. yeah you summed that up yeah. better than I did. So yeah, no, absolutely. no, 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 no. I think you, you give the context for me to, to summarize it. So it was needed. That's why, that's why we work so well together. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Two pieces of a privileged puzzle. Uh-huh. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I feel like we've more or less had our take on points. Just a generalization is an issue. Like I, I think that's fair. It's a fair yeah. cr- criticism. The science is ongoing. Our development is ongoing. We will and continue to do better. 
And so I think I, I, I very much understand and agree with that generalization is an issue and, and we need to do better. Yep, absolutely. 100%. Same. Perfect. All right. Well, then, as I said, I'm not going to do the listener mails that we have because I think they're the bigger conversations and I think decontextualizing them in this way would not be super helpful. So thank you for everyone who's been writing in Mm -hmm. and let's transition to some recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. All right. I am going to recommend a band. Mm Mm-hmm. That I've discovered recently, and they're called Buried Alive, but it's buried <laughs> as in B E R R I E D, like a like a like a berry, like a strawberry uh-huh. or a blueberry, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And it seems like this band's whole thing is puns around uh, around fruit, and <laughs> they are. Man, I don't even know how to describe this genre. This is, I guess, sort of like if house music and metal. <laughs> Yes. Became a thing. And its only motivation was to be fruit puns. <laughs> it's really silly and super fun. And I think a really enjoyable listening experience. So I would recommend giving them a chance. I think there's there's some things for people to like. And it's silly. Like it's it's a fun thing. So that's my recommendation is to check out Buried Alive, B-E-R-R-I-E-D, and then the word alive. I like it. I like it. That's great. Cool. It's so much fun too. It's it's just so like it's so like this is what you need in the world. Just like somebody who does not take anything seriously, just a little bit. Yeah. Oh, so an example of a song is like Armed Strawberry <laughs> and then Slaughtermelon. Yeah. So you can you can see there <laughs> yeah. sort of that that metal element of it and then the fruit puns. Yeah, it works. It works. I also picked a band for my recommendation this week, and it's a band called Paranool, I believe it's pronounced, hmm. and they have exactly one album out called To See the Next Part of the Dream. Now, okay, interesting, I, I discovered this band through uh, Pitchfork, of all places, and essentially, this band is really interesting because it was all recorded in this Korean citizen's apartment. Wow. Nobody knows, nobody knows who this person is, and they have not revealed their identity to the public because they are afraid of what their family and friends will think, but they have like hundreds of thousands of listeners on this record already musical banksy yeah musical banksy you know for me they sound like um they sound like a kind of like very lo-fi in terms of like it does sound like it wasn't recorded in a studio it sounds like it was kind of recorded in an apartment with like very fuzzy guitars like it sounds like it could have come up in the early 90s where um you know it's got like that like that really that big smashing pumpkin sound where it's like absolutely like like fuzz and droning and all that but it's got a little bit more melody so like maybe more like hum if you like stuff like hum Hmm. it's just a really fun listen it's a really nice listen he does some really cool like musical arrangements in the songs that are really neat shoegaze is another type of music it could be it's like very hummy and droney but like very like shoegazy if you're interested in that kind of stuff okay and it's just a it's a good listen i like it so um that's what i would recommend so it kind of reminds me there's like uh trent reznor and Banksy, the non, the anonymity of Banksy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it definitely like um like you when you hear it, you'll be like, okay, like I can hear the melody. Like I definitely hear like Sonic Youth vibes in it. Like I hear like early Smashing Pumpkins vibes to it. Like that kind of feel. So um yeah, it's definitely worth a listen. And this is on Spotify. It's on Spotify. Yep. Cool. It kind of reminds me. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I was on Jimmy Kimmel. They had this band on called the Linda Linda Lindas. I think was their name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you did you see this or hear about them? I haven't watched the video yet, but I have heard of them. Okay, yeah, I was like, well, this is like 
it was super fun to check it out. I recommend that's a, a bonus recommend. Bonus recommend. <laughs> bonus, bonus, bonus. On YouTube, the fun video of them playing a song that is called, I think, Racist Sexist Boy. Yep. Yep. They yeah. got signed to Epitaph. So uh the no guitar, way. Yeah, the yeah, uh the the, the Epitaph they're on the same record label as Bad Religion and The Offspring and Every Time I Die and Converge. <laughs> that's that's glorious. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. All right. Well, then, yeah, bonus recommend there. Go check that out. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you would like to tell us about something we got right or something we got wrong or a story you'd like to share about ableism or generalization or anything in this topic, please email us at info at www.podcast.com. You can also submit a message on this episode on our website. There's a, a form for sending us an email that way. If you'd rather go that route, you can reach us on all the social media platforms. We're primarily on Instagram and Twitter, I think is where most of our activity is, but we're mm-hmm. also of course on Facebook and other places. And uh, you can always check out more about these episodes by going to our website, www.podcast.com. Wherever you listen to us, if you leave us a rating and review, that always helps out. And then, of course, if you would like to, you can join us on Patreon and send us a little love. Speaking of which, we'd like to thank the following people for being super cool and helping us out on Patreon. We have Justine, Megan, Mike, and Shauna. Thank you very much for being Patreon supporters. You can find out more about signing up for these tiers uh, in the various reward levels that we have on Patreon.com. In the meantime, anything else, Shane? Nope, that's going to be it. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.